Welcome to Oslo International Church's podcast, where we share weekly reflections from our community of faith. If you'd like to explore more of our resources or join us for a service, visit our website at oslointernational.church. And now, here's the message from our last Sunday service with Pastor Mike on Stornagel. Whenever we are reading the Bible, whenever we are reading the Bible or speaking from the Bible or trying to understand the Bible, it's always important to be aware of the fact that the Bible is a very old text. It's, it's an ancient collection of texts, really, and the writing of it spans a huge amount of time. And even the more recent ones are almost two millennia old. And the letter of James, which we have been spending some time with recently, is of course no exception. Uh, We we are in the middle of a series now, we have called it Ordinary Faith. And the first part of it is time with the letter of James, which is a small letter in the end of what we call the New Testament, so the Christian writings after the first and second centuries that are part of our, of our Bible, uh, and the letter of James. We've been spending time with it for a couple of weeks now, and it's also one of those, probably written somewhere in the middle of the first century, so quite an old text. And when you get an ancient text like that, and you're trying to assess to figure out its relevance for today, it can sometimes be a bit cryptic, a bit mysterious. Take the beginning of the third chapter of James, for instance. This is, how, this is how it reads. It says, do we have it there? Yeah, there you go. It says, not many of you should become tweeters, my fellow believers, because you know that we who tweet will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they type is perfect, able to keep their whole profile in check. Like, what does this mean? You know, what's this ancient... Greek term tweet. What does that mean? Right, so okay, so maybe James didn't quite write it like that, and I'll blame it on translation, because, you know, whenever we're, most of us, when we're dealing with the Bible, we're dealing with translations, right? So this is from the ESFV, okay, the English satirical free version. So yeah, maybe James didn't quite write it like that. But he could have, couldn't he? Or to put it differently, is this rendering worth anything more than just comedy? And half of you are rolling your eyes at my bad dad jokes, and the other half is nodding and going like, yeah, that sounds about right. That makes sense. Because as much as 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 Elon Musk is unsuccessfully trying to make tweet an ancient term, it really isn't, right? All of us, whether you rolled your eyes or laughed or just sort of stared because you're not really sure what's okay in church, all of us know why I played around with a text like that. We get it. And we all know that this really isn't about Twitter or X or whatever it's called, per se. We know. It's not about that. What is it about, then? Those of you who have been coming to OIC for the past few weeks, 
since we started this, this series on James, know that I have been constantly fighting and bickering with James. And uh, my past two sermons started with some variation of like, ah, oh, James, really? <laughs> but this week, I actually found myself saying amen to James. You know, preach, brother. <laughs> and I also found myself despairing a bit. A weird mixture of those two. Because I believe what James is getting at in today's text is extremely relevant for the world today. But it's also right at the heart, sort of bull's eye of some of my own personal crisis and what could fairly accurately be described as my weekly struggling sessions. But before I get to that, though, I want to read the whole section from chapter 3, from verse 1 to 12. And this time, I will read it in a more orthodox proper translation. I'm going to read it from the New International Version. Uh, Letter of James, chapter 3, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 12, and this is how it's rendered there. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same tongue, of the same mouth, come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So what is this about? It's about language, isn't it? Communication, language. It's about speech, I should say, in the context of the text here in James, because he does this string of metaphors, like the, the horse, the, sh- the ship, the water, the fruit, the string of metaphors over the power of the tongue. And that makes sense, uh, both for the power of the metaphors, and they're quite powerful metaphors, but also because James is writing in a world and place where orality, like oral communication had a much more central role than it does for us today. Or maybe I should say it the other way around, that written speech was less widespread and accessible 
than it is today. Because it's not like orality doesn't play a strong role today either. We maybe pretend it doesn't. But again, James himself is writing, not speaking, and he's obviously aware of the power of his writing. And we instinctively, I think, know that this is about more than speech, more than just what comes from our mouth. This is as much about our typing fingers as it is about our speaking tongues or our hands making signs if that's our form of communication. And if this at first seems like a kind of a shift of focus in the letter of James, uh, we quickly realize that it really isn't. Now, in the former chapter, uh, which we talked about last week, James had been talking about faith and deeds, or faith and works in some translations or some traditions, uh, the, the things we do. Well, for James, speech is a deed. It is a work. It is an action in the world. It's an action in the world. It expresses the depth of our faith and convictions, and it creates something in the world, something quite real. James' metaphors make it abundantly clear that he believes that speech has real-life embodiment. It becomes something. It's a live, active force in the world with real-life consequences. So perhaps if James had been faced with the speed and the reach of our language expressions nowadays, with all the advances in technology and the eruption of social media and the Anthropocene, he would have wondered how we haven't yet set the whole world on fire. I kind of want to say we're getting there, James, right? We're working on it. There's potentially only a few typed characters between us and a nuclear apocalypse. We're getting close. Language is a powerful thing. Language is a powerful thing. So wielding it is a great responsibility, especially when you are in a position of public speaking or of teaching. So I spend a lot of time probably more than I should. I spend a lot of time every week pondering over language. Also, when you're trying to work across three languages and things get in weird knots in your head, pondering about language. I'm fully aware that words have power. Power to build, power to destroy, to mislead, to guide, to confuse, to harden, to soften to caress or to push away. And this awareness has been painfully heightened for me these past decade when the communication and the miscommunication tools of our contemporary reality have sort of mashed religious language, faith language, and political language in ways that are a few times beautiful, but many more times absolutely terrifying. So I have shared with some friends, and some of you here, we have talked about this, about, this struggle, about me struggling with this feeling that my language was in a way stolen from me. That's the feeling. That I struggle sometimes to speak and write 
Because the language that used to be dear and natural for me has been sort of co-opted by narratives that I find hurtful, that I find damaging. Now, that's the feeling. That's the feeling. But I fear it's not completely true. What I mean is some of it just has to do with the fact that I, I grew older. I've lived through more things. Hopefully, hopefully I've grown a bit wiser. And I've had the privilege of having my perspectives widened so that I am now aware of more dimensions of language than I was before, more ways in which it can be received and understood, more realities that it can create in the world for bad and for worse. And there's something else I realized. Language is always a risk. Communication is always a risk. I knew that. But the realization is that I always have a choice, or at least the opportunity to make the question, who am I really putting at risk when I speak or when I write? Who am I really putting at risk? Is it myself? Or is it those whom my language is sort of oriented towards? Those I am speaking to or those I am speaking about? Getting back to James, it can be easy to read that first verse and get defensive, right? Or get despaired. But that's making it kind of about me, isn't it? And maybe James isn't that concerned about me. It's one of the big questions from commentators on this verse. Who exactly is James talking to? Because that kind of frames what comes after, right? Is he talking to teachers who are abusing their position? Is he talking to wannabe teachers, people who wanted, were aspiring to that position because of some perceived entitlement or authority that it carried with it? Perhaps James is talking to everybody, and teachers is just a way of coming into that, almost like a leading metaphor. And as we go on with these verses, is this, is this about personal development? Is that what this is about? About how to become a better person through better control of our tongues? Like some sort of tongue fitness coach inspirational video on Instagram. This is how you get better. Or is it something else? I think part of the answer comes from realizing that even as we follow all those metaphors that James brings us with, the ship, uh, the horse, the animals that are tamed, up to verse 8, that verse 9 and 10 are not a metaphor. James is right back at the metaphors in verses 11 and 12, can a salt spring, fresh water, and all of that, but not verses 9 and 10. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. I don't think that these verses are another example among the metaphors. I think they are central to what James is getting at. 
But I want to stop here for a moment, and I want to come at it from another angle. Because what made this text clearer for me, and actually brought me hope, from a surprising angle actually, but brought me hope and even a will to engage, was oddly enough, a whole other section of the book of James. It was the ending bit of the letter. In chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. And I want to read it with you. This is what James says in chapter 5, all the way towards the end of his letter, from verse 13 to 20. He says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, at first, I wasn't quite sure what I would do with this part of James when I got to it. It seems like a whole bunch of small recommendation, advanced uh, uh, sort of advices, guidelines. It's not even clear what their, what their tone is supposed to be. Is, is, are there imperatives? Are there uh, suggestions? Even the original Greek grammar is a bit weird. And what's more, some of the things that James seems to be in the least inviting his listeners to engage with, if not outright instructing them to, are things that are foreign to the tradition of faith that I grew up in. As I said, we come from many different traditions of faith in, in OIC, many different church backgrounds or religious backgrounds and different experiences. I, I myself grew up in the Lutheran church in the south of Brazil. And we would, we would pray when we're in tr we were in trouble, sure, but mostly sort of quietly or in a more intimate group setting. We would pray for the sick, but anointing with oil wasn't really a thing. And again, our prayers would usually be a bit more modest, you know, with a respectful laying of hands at the most. We would definitely not be so bold as to state that our prayers would, by definition, make the sick person well. Now, some of you, on the other hand, might have come from traditions that were and are a lot more bold with this kind of practices and expressions. And maybe for you, anointing with oil is, yeah, that's what we do. Now, we believed when I grew up in confession and forgiveness, but we didn't really practice mutual confession all that much. Maybe some of you did. Maybe some of you come from traditions where that was a thing. But you get the point, right? Some of these practices aren't something that I'm very comfortable with. And what is it about? But then I realized, or to be honest, <laughs> biblical scholar L.T. Johnson pointed out to me 
that also this section of James is about speech. It's about speech. Johnson argues that this section of James is about speech in the context of the community of faith. How we use the power of the spoken word of communication in the context of the community of faith. Now, I not only think he has a very good point, I also find this fascinating. Because that means that this is about the healing and the redemptive power of speech. And it sort of closes the circle. But first, let me get back to chapter 3, because this contrast allows me to say even more clearly, all these metaphors are to emphasize the destructive and toxic power of speech and communication. We get that, right? But they are to emphasize that 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 which speech and communication are destroying and poisoning is the community. That which the speech is destroying and poisoning is the community. The control of, of speech as sort of an expression of a higher moral character was actually a very common trope in in Hellenistic moralist writings and discourse of the day. So the teachers, the Hellenistic, the Greek teachers, this was a thing that people would talk about. But while these teachers, Hellenistic moralist teachers, tend to think that such a control is possible if you just work hard enough, James, when you read it, seems to have a much more negative view. He's like, nobody can do this. Speech is a beast that no one can control. And I suspect that that is because James is not mainly concerned with the virtue of the individual. He is concerned with the community. He is concerned with the community. He is not aiming or encouraging the perfection of the individual as some sort of superior moral creature. He is aspiring and encouraging for a community of solidarity. A community where mutual speech and communication is a language of healing, is a language of life. And for that to happen, humbleness and forgiveness and healing need to take place. They need to happen. So for James, this comes through realizing that our speech has the power to hurt, to destroy, because if we don't realize that, we don't learn the power of forgiveness. We don't learn the power of repentance. We don't learn the power of healing each other with our words. And that is why chapter 5 comes so powerfully to our aid, I believe. Because there, James is encouraging and urging the community to use speech, to use communication in healing and life-giving ways. To dare to be vulnerable and to live in a community where all who are part of the community has voices and have ears. And he 
takes on and speaks of these practices that were fairly common practices of his time and of the early Christian community and insists that they be owned by the community and not monopolized by individuals. So anyone who is struggling can call on the elders, can call on the leaders to pray for them, to speak words of healing over them. So he says, forgiveness is your common language. Not hierarchy, not speaking down on each other, not abusing your position of being a teacher, but forgiveness. Forgiveness is your common language. Confession is the practice of building up each other and not of tearing down. When we're struggling, we confess so that we may be healed. And he comes with this example of this example of prophet Elijah, which was for us feels like all weird, but Elijah was someone struggling, right? Elijah is a beleaguered prophet, persecuted, that prays for the healing of the starving community through rain. Think about that, right? Why is Elijah's prayer important? Because there had been drought for three years. People are drying. People are dying. And he prays and the crops come and the community is healed through his prayer. This is not about Elijah being the great guy. It's about what these words bring to the community. And for the people hearing him, James, Elijah is relatable because Elijah is is, is being persecuted. And so are they. The speech that brings someone back, says James, to the fold of the community with, with an embrace is a speech that is celebrate and is an expression of holy redemption and of life. For me, this landed at realizing that in James, the body that is either desecrated or elevated and healed by speech, by how we address each other, is the collective body of Christ. Not our own individual's moral ascent. And that, that gives me hope. That gives me hope. Gives me a reason to keep on speaking, even through my frailty and my insecurities, even through the knowledge that I will necessarily get it wrong a couple of times. Maybe many times. Hopefully not most of the times. It gives me courage to ask, can we take the practice of being a community of solidarity and find ways of speaking that conduce, that create, that make that possible? Can we make forgiveness a common language? Can we make confession a safe space of mutual encouragement and building up? Can we make prayer, prayers of desire for the healing of the community and not for the growth of my own personal moral status or wealth or whatever it may be? What do we build with the ways we talk? What does this mean for us in OIC? 
Can the way we meet across our cultural, theological, tradition differences and speak to each other with kindness, with the willingness to understand, the willingness to forgive, the willingness to confess in a safe space, can that model a way of being in the world that brings healing rather than destruction in a world where the ways in which we talk about each other are often ways of war? of conflict, of strengthening me against, over and against the other. Now, that's a very difficult thing to say or to do because the world is such a complex place, isn't it? Sometimes we hurt each other with our language without even noticing it. We just didn't know. Sometimes we should know better and don't bother learning. But here we have an opportunity of having Christ as the common denominator of this language, right? Which means that then we can speak about forgiveness, we can speak about confession, we can have space for humbleness. We can have space for healing and for faith. So James tells us, see, language from all, all ages. James tells us, right? Yeah, you have to get to grips with how powerful this is so that you can also dare engage with the healing power of the gospel of Christ taking place and shape in your community. I think that's worth a try. I think the world needs communities that try this out. I think more than the challenges we might have in communicating with each other because we grew up with different languages, because we're maybe still stepping around the region or English or, you know, more than that, more than our aspiration for learning one language or the other, we should place at the center our desire to learn how to speak to each other as a community of healing, as a community of forgiveness, as a community where the, the language of grace is the language that welcomes us to the center and that welcomes us to the table. And today we get to share in Holy Communion, which is one of the oldest and most deeply rooted practices of the Christian faith. A practice where language is spoken and language is something, right? Where language are the memory that we express and are the bread and the wine that we take, which speak again of a table where forgiveness, where humbleness, where grace, where life that goes through death but still brings forth life, is the common denominator, is the stuff we eat together, is the stuff with which we nurture each other and are nurtured by the living presence of Christ. So when we come to the table, maybe we can meet James there and each other and find the grace and find the hope to keep on trying.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you, towards the challenges you face, the joys you rejoice in, the reality of your lives, that he may bring you of his peace. And so let us go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, and in such a way, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen. Do you want to stay connected with us? Check out our website at oslointernational.church to discover more about our community, access additional resources, and join us in our faith journey. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.